There are elements in Israel that one could define as Jewish extremists slash terrorists. I know that under the, with the COVID crisis that several ultra-Orthodox communities have been anything but helpful. Like you can't deter Al-Qaeda or you can't deter ISIS, but Hezbollah and Hamas you can deter because they have something to lose. There's no foreseeable end to, to this threat. Absolutely. And because that, I sort of talk about 30 years wars, which may become 100 years wars. Hi, my name is Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. And you're listening to Canadian Intelligence, eh? A podcast about all things national security. I've had the the pleasure of traveling to Israel. I have met with Israeli authorities, both within the Shin Bet and the Mossad, in in my past as an intelligence analyst for Canada. And I have an appreciation for the types of threats that that country faces and the job that Israel's protectors, i.e. their security, intelligence services and military, have on their plate on a daily basis. But I am anything but an expert on Israel proper. And so I thought it would be a really, really good idea to bring into the conversation Joshua Krasna, who is a senior researcher, writer, and university lecturer. He retired in 2017 after 30 years of government service in Israel, including as a strategic planner, a senior Middle East and strategic analyst, etc., etc. He actually was also a diplomat. He worked as a counselor at the Israeli embassy here in Ottawa, here in Canada, and is now a fellow at the Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security and an adjunct assistant professor at the New York University Center for Global Affairs. So, Josh, um, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with the easy questions now. From your perspective, in, in 2020, what are the most serious national security threats that Israel faces? So, um, can I change your word threats to challenges? Absolutely. Um, because um, I think the first interesting thing, and, and, and perhaps sounds counterintuitive to people who sort of hear a lot of Israelis talking, is that I think that Israel's national security is probably close to the best it's ever been. Um, I think that um, uh, the pet, uh, since 1973, at the time we didn't know it, but in 1973, Israel, the sort of the dangers to Israel's security hit their peak. And I think since 1973 and, and, and more so since the 1990s, I think um, Israel, um, has become objectively more and more secure. Um, so 73, that of course is the, the October crisis, the October war, 73. The October war. And then uh, for a while after that, Israel was spending 30% of its GDP on defense. But uh, already since the early 2000s, we spend an average of 6 to 7% a year on defense. So that's a Wow, that's a significant, yeah. That's, that's a, a significant change. decrease. That's right. Um, and uh, by the way, the amount the uh, amount hasn't changed so much. But what's happened over time is that our economy has grown tremendously. Um, and uh, and other things that have happened, of course, over those uh, uh, almost 50 years is we signed a peace treaty with Egypt, which is our biggest military threat. And that peace treaty has um, has uh, maintained itself and and uh, and stayed in place for 40 years. Um, and um, we uh, signed in, uh, in 1994 peace treaty with Jordan, which means that our two longest boundaries, that uh, borders, that with Jordan and that with Egypt, are with countries that we have peace with. 
And that led to a tremendous peace dividend, uh, both in terms of defense spending, but also in terms of our being able to, um, let's say, um, uh, decrease the investment um, of uh, 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 manpower and treasure facing those two fronts, and therefore able to face our other fronts uh, more, uh, more significantly. And then, of course, 2003, the Iraqi threat, which had always been um, uh, sort of the, the, the main um, second-tier threat to Israel, disappeared because Iraq basically collapsed. And then the Iraq that is now being um, reconfigured, is, Israel is not one of their uh, uh, um, main criteria at all. And our last major state enemy, um, which was Syria, starting in 2011, is very, very much engrossed in itself and has become even less of a threat um, uh, uh, to Israel. So that's even before I reach what our three uh, big challenges are now, I would just say that um, that in terms of uh, uh, um, our overall, uh, our overall uh, relationships um, in the region uh, and, our, and the overall balance of power and balance of force in the region, I think that we're in a much better place than we've been in the past. Um, sorry. Yeah. That, that's indeed very, very good news because, you know, as I said it in, in the introduction, I mean, Israel was faced with that. Let's face it, it, it was an existential threat dating back to the, yes. you know, the, the creation of the country in 1948. And as you said, most of the inimical neighbors that you've dealt with have essentially either signed peace treaties or no longer face a threat. Just quickly, Joshua, before you talk about challenges, do you see these uh, neighbors and partners, well, I wouldn't call them partners, do you see these peace treaties that have been signed with the neighbors sort of, uh, are they going to be maintained? Because I, I worry about Egypt under Sisi. Do you, do you see perhaps Egypt returning to a position at some point in the future where they will no longer see Israel as, or they rather they will see Israel once again as a potential a potential foe? Yeah, so I um, I think that first of all, yes, they're partners, right? It's not just peace treaties. Uh, it's, it's actual partnership. Um, and the Egyptians have been surprisingly good partners. Um, over the past 40 years, which is, uh, think of it, they went through a revolution, right? Um, the person who signed the peace treaty with us was killed. His successor ruled the country for 30 years, Mubarak. Mm -hmm. he, Mubarak. He, he fell. He was replaced by our government, which was almost the exact opposite, right? A government of the, um, of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And that mm -hmm. government, in the year that it was in power, didn't challenge the peace treaty with Israel at all. Um, mm. And in fact, was quite helpful to us uh, as, an, as a significant interlocutor between us and Hamas, because we don't, uh, we don't engage with Hamas directly and we need uh, interlocutors who can both provide good offices and send messages and, and all, all of that, but who also are significant and strong enough in terms of Hamas for Hamas to listen to them. And Egypt has been fulfilling that role very good very well before the revolution, since the revolution, and to this day. And um, yes, I'm sorry. And uh, Egypt also um, has been facing a very serious uh, ISIS-affiliated threat in the Sinai, and mm -hmm. in fact has developed very significant security intelligence and even military cooperation with Israel in addressing that threat. So I think up until now, um, the peace treaty with uh, Egypt has been a really good investment, and as I said, has had several significant challenges right we signed the peace treaty in 79 we went to war in lebanon in 82 the uh the egyptians weren't that happy but you know didn't do anything we've had 
various uh, two intifadas where we were uh, uh, in a struggle with uh, uh, popular struggle with the Palestinians. Um, we had um, um, two changes of government in Egypt, and the peace treaty uh, is still pretty robust. So, um, and and one other thing, I'm sorry, Phil, just to 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 sort of give you a complete answer. And the other thing that's happened to Egypt since uh, um, the 1970s is that Egypt has become a country that militarily is is tremendously dependent on the United States. And that is something that gives us sort of a, a cushion of, of, uh, of um, comfort, which is very significant because if Egypt decided tomorrow that it was going to change its attitude towards Israel and take a more belligerent military attitude towards Israel, it would be not only um, a change its attitude to Israel, but it would be an entire change of its orientation in terms of uh, being a um, a uh, country which is allied to the United States and which is uh, basically the United States is its main military supplier. I think I think those are excellent points, Joshua, because as we know, the, you know the the Egypt, I guess, prior to Sadat or even in Sadat's day, was seen more or less as a Soviet client, if my history uh, is correct. And I, I don't disagree with you. I think that Egypt, whatever you think of the Sisi government and whatever you think of the Muslim Brotherhood. They are struggling with a an economy that is completely in tatters, partly because of COVID, partly for other reasons, as well as you mentioned, the Islamic State and the Sinai, which people forget is actually one of the more lethal Islamic State affiliates in recent years in terms of yes. attacks against Egyptian forces, attacks against tourist sites. So getting back to that first question, then you said you'd rather see this more in terms of not national security threats, but challenges. So what, what are those challenges from your perspective? So I think the preeminent challenge and the one I can really define as a national security threat is um, the potential of Iran becoming a nuclear power. And the reality of, of Iran playing a anti-Israeli and destabilizing role in the region, right? So if if I if we look and we say, okay, who is who are what are the major national security concerns of Israel? That is the top one. But uh, you were discussing existential threats before. It's not an existential threat now, right? If Iran developed uh, uh, achieved capability of developing nuclear weapons and, and the uh, abilities to deliver those weapons, that could be a the theoretical existential threat to Israel. So right now we have a potential existential threat and we have activity in the region, which is of concern with us because it strengthens our enemy. And that will be, uh, let's say my second um, challenge or threat, which is that Israel faces um, um, long wars, that it's a basically two 30-year wars, right? One with Hezbollah and one with Hamas. And these are wars which are, um, if we look at Israeli history, right, in terms of casualties and in terms of disruption, are low-intensity conflicts, but they are conflicts that seem to be fairly insoluble. In other words, we're fighting 30-year mm -hmm. wars of attrition with two um, uh, non-state actors, right? It's hard to call them non-state. Maybe I'll address that in a minute. Two actors who are sub-state actors um, who uh, are constantly generating a threat and constantly bleeding us as well, but ha but certainly don't pass the um, the ceiling, right? The the threshold of being uh, um, existential or even extremely serious national security threats, mm -hmm. right? In other words, 
They are threats that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. They are our major day-to-day threat. They are um, an extremely challenging, uh, versatile, and resilient adversary. But they're not. We're not talking about Egypt between 1948 and 1973, right? Or Syria, or Syria between 1973 and the late 80s. You know, we're not talking about a country or, or combination of countries that has the ability to destroy the state of Israel. Um, we're talking about actors who, who are certainly a significant military challenge and who certainly have the ability to disrupt um, normal life in Israel and to, of course, uh, um, um, to the extent that the sort of cold or warm wars with them turn hot to uh, 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 inflict significant amount of casualties uh, um, on on uh, Israeli forces. But, um, but, they're, but, they're, but they're, also, they're also groups with which it's impossible to sit down at a table and negotiate peace in the same sense that you did with Egypt in 1979. Uh, in that sense, then, there's no foreseeable end to, to this threat then. Absolutely. And because that, I sort of talk about 30 years wars, which may become 100 years wars, right? Because wow. um, they are wars that, that um, if you've been in Israel, certainly been in Israel in recent years, right? Our, our, our normal life runs, you know, um, the same as always as we're a country that's doing right now badly because of COVID, but in general, doing very well economically, doing very well technologically, developing a civil, a civil society. But, um, but all of that, while we have these two sort of running sores, which, which aren't going away anytime soon. And as you said, Israel's sort of uh, military strategy in the past has always been based on, we'll have a sharp, short war, and then we'll have peace for a long period. So, so that is impossible to achieve with these two, um, with uh, with uh, these two adversaries. Even though both of them, as I said, are are almost semi-state actors. Why? Uh, right. Hamas is in fact the government of the Gaza Strip, right? Um, Hamas is 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 a a, um, a near state actor, right? It has territory. It has a government. It has an army. Um, um, so uh, to the Hamas in the Gaza is pretty much a near state adversary, right? right? Hamas as a terrorist organization inside Israel or in the West Bank, which thank goodness, and I'm knocking here on wood, right? Has not been very active in the past years. But remember that between 2000 and 2004, we lost 1500 Israeli casualties, Israeli killed in the right. second intifada. But but for now, has been fairly uh, quiescent there. There it is a, a national security, policing, insurgency, counterterrorism threat. Um, Hezbollah also, uh, while Hezbollah is not the government of Lebanon, Hezbollah is the most powerful force militarily and politically in Lebanon. And is of course backed, uh, backed up by Iran, which is our, our uh, uh, most significant adversary. So uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon is 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 also a near state actor with a near army that's uh, uh, um, uh, that is um, that is standing by and a very well armed army. But because both Hamas and Hezbollah, because they are near state actors, they have territory, they have governmental structures. The principles of deterrence do work with them, mm-hmm. right? Can, sorry. 
No, no, no. no. Like you can't I, deter Al Qaeda or you can't deter ISIS, but Hezbollah and Hamas you can deter because they have something to lose. Mm-hmm, exactly. We, we talked about you know the the seminal event of the signing of of peace, you know, back in in seventy nine with Egypt, and. You know, Israel obviously has benefited greatly from from its allies around the world, of which Canada, of course, is one. But your big, your biggest ally is and always will be, I think, the United States. In the waning days of the Trump administration, the Americans brokered peace deals between Israel and three Arab states, mm-hmm. Bahrain, the UAE, and Sudan. Part of me says this is just the Trump administration trying to I don't know, do something high profile. Uh, do these peace treaties really matter for Israel? And it really will it really make a difference in terms of Israel's national security, Joshua? So first, I, I want to be precise. There are two peace treaties. The one with Sudan is has not yet been completed. Um, in fact, um, in January or February, our, our prime minister met with Burhan, who's the head of the military transitional committee um, uh, in Uganda. They spoke about um they spoke about uh, normalization and then of course uh, a month ago or two months ago um pompeo again spoke about normalization and it's sort of it's a little bit of a polish wedding um with the, <laughs> with the with with sudan you know it's uh, it's sort of um it's uh, and part of it of course is because of the situation in sudan uh but we'll right. put that aside certainly um the the um the impetus Right, the uh, the um, uh, seems to be very very positive, and and I think that that is very important to Israeli national security. I think um, sort of going back to what we were discussing before. I think if we, if I look at the Middle East now, I see that states that are enemy to Israel, right, enemy states, there are two and two halves, right. There's Iran and Syria, certainly enemy states. There is Hezbollah in Lebanon, right? The the state of Lebanon is not an enemy of Israel. I mean, it's defined such illegally, but it doesn't act like an enemy of Israel. In fact, we're negotiating with them right now about the maritime border. Hezbollah is an enemy, and so and and Hamas in Gaza, right? But if if I had looked at it, if 30 years ago, or or certainly 40 years ago, I had looked at you had told me that the two countries that are still enemies of Israel are Syria and Iran, I probably would have signed off on that happily. Mm-hmm. And now what's going on is that many of the countries that over the years have been in sort of this position of not friend but not enemy, right? We only had three uh, um, uh, um, polities. Three in the Middle East that signed peace treaties to Israel, Egypt, Jordan, but also the Palestinian Authority, right? right? The Palestinian Authority came into being because of an agreement between Israel and the PLO. Mm-hmm. So right now those reaction, those relations aren't very good, but Israel recognized the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority recognizes Israel. So I'm saying so, and then for a long time there was nothing, right? 20, um, in, uh, uh, in, in uh, 2019, we celebrated 25 years today to the uh, Jordanian peace treaty. And think of it, since 2014, there had not been a single peace agreement between, uh, since 1994, there had been a single mm-hmm. peace agreement between Israel and Arab countries. So we reached the stage where we were no longer at war with people, but we weren't moving past that. And I think that the UAE and Bahrain, 
Well, the UAE and Bahrain in themselves are very small countries with very small populations. Um, the natives, uh, native uh, uh, Bahrainis and Emiratis are a minority in their country. Um, they are not, well, I shouldn't say that, UAE is. They have not been until recently movers and shakers in the Arab world, but they have recognized Israel as totally normal relations, right? And think of it, with Egypt, there was territorial component, right? We had to give something, we had to get something back. With Jordan, there was Esfah territorial, but we're, we were neighboring countries. And here we've reached out to countries who don't neighbor with us, and those countries have now um, formalized this sort of um, uh, alliance of interest they've been developing with Israel, um, certainly since 2000, uh, beginning in 2003 with the fall of, of the Iraq and the expansion of Iranian influence in the, re in the uh, region, jumping forward in 2011 with the uh, Arab uprisings and their need to build a conservative um, block in the Middle East and to, con to deal with uh, 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 the Iranians trying to, um, trying to um, um, uh, utilize uh, the unrest in the Arab world and succeeding in Iraq and in Syria and to a certain extent in Libya. And of course, uh, what began already in the second Bush administration, but continued through the Obama administration and hit a peak in 2015, which is the United States sort of changing its orientation, wanting to disengage, wanting to pull its troops back. 2015, you have the nuclear deal, which really pushed Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Israel into a very close political alliance and a very activist um, political coordination. And then, of course, 2000, uh, starting uh, 2016, where Trump administration, which on the one hand is a very positive administration in, in their point of view in terms of their interests, but on the other hand is, very, is not interested in the Middle East and wants to disengage. So, mm -hmm. so uh, there was this, this coming together in any case of sort of like-minded states but now the UAE and Bahrain have jumped forward on that. And now it's already formal. And it's not formal with the Saudis, and it won't be formal for a while with the Saudis, but it's fairly clear to anyone in the region that Israel and Saudi Arabia are no longer adversaries, right? If they're anything, they're friends. I'm, I'm glad you raised the whole Saudi angle, Joshua. Do, do you think it's just a matter of time before Saudi Arabia and Israel enter into a peace treaty? Yes. relations, brother? Yes, but a matter of time is, is always a great way to put it because it doesn't tell me how much time. <laughs> so I think that the two countries have a lot of interests and I think they don't have a lot of things which they disagree on. And I think Mohammed ben Salman um, uh, would be very interesting in, in former formalizing that relationship. I think unlike UAE and Bahrain, Saudi Arabia is a big country and therefore there are important constituencies which don't necessarily agree with uh, formalizing relationship with Israel. And I think that Mohammed bin Salman himself um, has not completed what seems to be his takeover of the Saudi political system. He is not king yet. And there are still people in the, in the, in the family who might not want him to be king yet. And his father, by the way, um, sometimes uh, intervenes to sort of um, um, uh, let's say, bring him back to line when he gets too far ahead of himself on the Palestinian issue, for instance. So I think that while uh, there's tremendous uh, uh, coincidence of, of interests, you can even perhaps call it an alignment of interests, and while uh, Saudi Arabia has gone pretty far, I mean, Israeli planes can now overfly Saudi Arabia, um, Saudis and Israelis at this point are meeting and they're not, meet, you know, they're not scared to meet anymore. 
Um, and, um, but I, and uh, the Bahrainis, for instance, would not have made peace, would not have signed a formal treaty with Israel without the agreement of the Saudis. Um, um, and I don't think, by the way, Sudan would have gone into it without the agreement of the Saudis and the UAE. I think Saudi Arabia um, is not going to be the next country or maybe even the one after that. I think, as I said, there's there's uh, there are domestic constituencies. There's the leadership role that they play in the Arab world, where I'm not sure uh, that they want to go that far. I think that um, until Mohammed bin Salman solidifies his political power, I don't think he wants to do something that uh, might be received badly um, uh, in the region and uh, uh, inside Saudi Arabia. But I think he's he's going to go right up to the line of formalizing relations. There is, I talk about nor, normal relations and formal relations. I think normal relations we're pretty close to. I think formal relations is going to be a bridge too far at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly understand why it would be in Israel's interest to attract a power such as Saudi Arabia, as you said, a lot bigger than Bahrain and UAE, which are, you know, small Gulf states uh, wields an enormous amount of uh, influence in the Arab world and the Muslim world. Although I would push back a little bit and wonder why, uh, you know, a state would embrace someone uh, being led by a man who likes to, you know, dismember journalists in Turkey. But that's a whole other issue, I suppose. Let, let's turn the conversation a little bit inward, Joshua, if that's okay. Sure. We we certainly I don't disagree with you that when it comes to the, the challenges as you frame it. Oh, by the way, there's hand. a third. There's a third challenge, which I, which uh, you asked me for three, and I didn't. Uh, oh, right, this, sure, go right ahead. The third challenge is um, maintaining um, a robust and and very friendly and very deep strategic alliance with the United States, mm -hmm. which is not. And and, and given the fact we now have a new president that, uh, you know, we have Joe Biden as the president, is that looking optimistic on that front as well? So I think I think it's it, I, I think that Israel um, uh, has a deep uh, and very wide relationship with the United States, both with Democrats and Republicans. However, and I think the military relationship is very good. However, I think that, yes, the government of Israel uh, has some work uh, cut out for him. Um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been very closely associated with with President Trump, has made no bones of the fact that he wanted that he enjoyed working with Trump and that he wanted Trump to be reelected. Uh, so I think that, you know, we have some work um, cut out for us in, in trying to show that we know how to be bipartisan. It's a muscle that we haven't that uh, un, uh, our bipartisan muscle atrophied under Obama and certainly atrophied even more under, under Trump. And I think we need to work. It's going to be it's a, a significant challenge to make sure that we still manage to have a, a good relationship and, and a, you know, a robust and, and visibly positive relationship uh, with the White House and with the United States. It, it's not impossible. It, it's 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 something that we certainly can do, but we're going to have to put some effort into it. In other words, I think there's things that the Netanyahu government probably took for granted under the Trump administration, that it, it can't no longer do so under a Biden one. Is that the way you would frame it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. But also, but also, you know, Biden and especially the other Democrats are coming in knowing that Netanyahu um, was not particularly um, helpful uh, or friendly under Obama and has been one of Trump's closest international allies. Right. Right.
So, so let, let me turn the conversation to another, what I would call a challenge for Israel. I'm not sure if you would agree with me on this. And there's no question that in terms of threats to, to public safety and national security, you know, Hezbollah and, and Hamas are definitely the, the, the two greatest terrorist actors. And, and one's against, as we said earlier, there's no hope of actually downing tools on this one because neither party, neither the Hezbollahis or the Hamasis are going to want to actually you know, recognize Israel and deal with it. What about Israeli internal policies? And here I'm turning to what's happening in the West Bank. Particularly, there's a, an announcement the other day where uh, new settlements are being announced in the West Bank, which some have said definitely undermines any kind of territorial integrity for the Palestinians. And I guess more narrowly, Joshua, uh, Jewish extremism, which, again, I'm not equating to you know Islamist extremism. It's, it pales in comparison. But there are elements in Israel that one could define as Jewish extremists slash terrorists. I know that under the, with the COVID crisis that several ultra-Orthodox communities have been anything but helpful in uh, in not abiding by good practices to, to stop the spread of COVID-19. How important is this aspect of Jewish life uh, in Israel? And can the Netanyahu government, which my understanding has relied in many ways, because it's always a minority government and many coalitions in Israel, has relied on the support of the ultra-Orthodox and what I call Jewish extremists. Can anything be done on that front? Or is it simply the politics gets in the way? So I'm going um, to uh, uh, break this down a little bit because I think it's important. So first of all, um, I want to separate the, the idea of Jewish extremism from ultra-Orthodox, right? Ultra-Orthodox are... Um, no one's quite sure, but say probably 10 to 15% of the population. Um, they are organized politically. They're part of our country. In other words, um, we might not like everything they do. Uh, uh, they, they, um, but um, they're not an anti-state force as such, right? They are a a political constituency and a social constituency. By the way, poor, uh, impoverished constituency, which um, which has to be addressed. And and you know, we can like them or not like them. Um, they. The, even when they are violent, it is not um, something that we could bring to the level of extremism or terror, right? It's in, um, um, now there is Jewish extremism in Israel. It's mostly on the it's oh, mostly it's on the far right in Israel. Very much um, the um, the uh, far right politics blend into religious messianism, which by the way is not the ultra orthodox. It's a certain element of what we call the modern Orthodox community, much more than the ultra-Orthodox community. Oh, that's and, clarification. I did not know that. Right. And the interesting thing there is that um, that group, um, it, it, those groups existed in 2015. They committed a horrific murder of a Palestinian family in the town of Duma. Uh, the interesting thing that happened after that, of course, was that the Shabak, right, the Israeli security agency, the government declared that those the people who carried out those attacks and attacks by um, Jewish extremists against uh, Palestinian civilians were terror. And the Shabak went out and using the tools that it had developed to deal with Arab terror, arrested the people, found the people, arrested them. And one of them was a few weeks ago uh, sentenced to life imprisonment. So um, I would say that sort of the sine wave of, of Jewish extremism hit hit its real peak actually um quite some time ago um 
which is, of course, when our prime minister was murdered. But uh, right. Yitzhak Rabin, 1995, 25 years ago, almost exactly last week, um, mm -hmm. was murdered by a right-wing Jewish extremist. And the reaction since then has been such that there is very little tolerance, even um, on the political right in Israel, for acts of violence. Now, I'm going to be against Jews, right? right. There, is, there is a certain level um, all the time of extremist violence against uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, less against Arab Israelis, because uh, despite a lot of things, you know, despite what a lot of people think, Arab Israelis in Israel um, have full rights, and therefore a crime committed against them is considered a crime committed against anybody else. It will be investigated by a police, and they'll, they'll find the people. I think one of the things that we're most worried about right now is, so so there is this these uh, marginal Jewish extremist groups who do carry out um, um, attacks um, uh, against Palestinian targets in the West Bank. It's decreased very much over the past, I would say, five to ten years. What we are more worried about now, actually, and if you're talking about Jewish right-wing extremism, actually has to do with the political disagreements in the country. Because, uh, as you know, um, uh, many people on the center and the left have begun to have demonstrations uh, against Netanyahu, wanting Netanyahu to resign, um, wanting the government to fall. And the reaction of uh, many uh, of, the, of Netanyahu's supporters in the Likud has been extremely violent, um, violent in terms of language, also violent in terms of um, sort of street violence, um, no, no, not use of arms and not use of killing, but um, all the major figures in the um, anti-Netanyahu movement have received death, death, death threats, ha as have many senior people in the um, judicial branch because uh, part of the a rights um, effort um, to uh, against the anti-Netanyahu forces is to discredit um, the judicial branch and say that the judicial the judicial branch is too activist. Discredit um, the uh, uh, um, uh, what's it called um, the um, prosecution service and our state attorneys. Uh, many of them have to have, uh, um, including our attorney general. Uh, have full-time uh, security because they are under threat by right-wing extremists. But these are, uh, this is sort of within the context of Israeli politics. Uh, one of the interesting things is that unlike the United States, where politics, uh, right-wing politics will of course play into racism and race and, and racial politics, in Israel, as I say, some of this is directed against Arab Israelis very little. It's mostly uh, directed, it's much more on the political than on the racial level. In other words, uh, there's a lot of uh, verbal violence and online violence and even some real violence and, and death threats, things like directed against the political left and center, the anti-Netanyahu camp. And that right now is actually a fairly significant issue. Um, but, uh, but again, um, you know, uh, we, the the nature of the kind of threat that, that um, I, I know um, they've seen in the United States and that that you've seen to a certain extent in Canada. Um, we sort of hit our high point of that 25 years ago, and today there's less of that. You strike me as, as, as 
optimistic, generally speaking, Joshua, when it comes to uh, Israel's threats. You talk about the fact that, you know, obviously the, the neighbors more or less are, are getting along. You've signed, uh, you know, recognition treaties with the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and perhaps one day the Sudanese. You portray Hamas and Hezbollah as serious threats, but clearly not existential ones, ones in Israel can manage. And then you've just basically walked me through, you know, the internal strife within Israel. Would that be a mistake for me to say that overall, you're looking at the the national security slash public safety situation in Israel as of, you know, mid-November 2020 as generally in a good place? Um, uh, but yes, it would be a bit. So uh, we're, we're, when we're discussing from the, from the narrow view of national security, I think, yes. I think we have a serious problem in Israel today with social solidarity. I think the break between right and left in politics, by the way, very similar to that in the United States, um, very much is, quite, so. is quite worrisome because I think um, for perhaps one of the first times or, 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 or uh, one of the very few times in Israeli, uh, in the Israeli uh, history, I think we're suffering a breakdown of social solidarity. You know, people... Um, view people who on the other side, the people on either extreme, but I'm not talking about the far, far extremes, far extreme right instead, I'm talking sort of the, the extreme of the mainstream, right? People on the right of the, of the uh, Netanyahu uh, supporters uh, and people on the left of the Netanyahu uh, non-supporters, I think very much at this point are, are, don't see each other as legitimate. And I think that's a problem. In other words, I think that one of the things that we've always, uh, that's always been strong in Israel is, is a feeling of social solidarity and social resilience. And I think that may be breaking down. And that's a concern on the national level. And of course, national security is broadly defined, though not security uh, in the other, in the aspects uh, that we're discussing here. And I think the breakdown in general, and again, not that different from the one that you see south of you, the breakdown in general of respect for rule of law and and you know the breakdown in respect for the need to have a um a uh, 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 a competent and objective civil service and you know the need to uh, be able to understand that uh, we need to reach across the uh the aisle and and occasionally certain things require uh, 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 bipartisan cooperation yes we're not in a good place in those things and 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 one other thing, of course, is that um, uh, in Israel right now, we view Syria, uh, Turkey as a fairly serious challenge, uh, not a national security challenge specifically, but a challenge to other interests that we have in the region, certainly gas interests and our uh, uh, strategic cooperation with Greece and Cyprus. Well, there's no question the Erdogan government has been a pain in the ass for, for many people, and it, and it is extremely worrisome, the sort of ethno-nationalism that he's engaged in. That's right. Uh, listen, Joshua, th- this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm really glad we ended on that note of the lack of, of civil discourse and the lack of people people's ability, both in your country, in mine, United States, etc., to agree to disagree at least if not peacefully, at least without, you know, getting to that violent fringe. Without rancor, without rancor, I think is the issue. Exactly. And and I do think that there are a lot of people are very concerned about the rise of violence from that perspective. But this has been a a very wide ranging conversation on, you know, security issues as seen through an Israeli lens. I do respect you for, you know, the past you have as as a practitioner with the Israeli government. And I do want to just remind my listeners as well, I neglected to mention that you're also an instructor at the in the Security Economics and Technology Program at the University of Ottawa's 
Professional Development Institute, which is what I'm the director of. And if people want to take your courses, they simply have to go to the Ottawa U website and 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 find out and and and, uh, and sign up for them. So, Joshua, this we could have talked for hours. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to uh, to talk to me today. Great, thank you very much for having me, Phil. It's been very interesting. That was my conversation with Josh Krasna. He was in in Modin, Israel, just outside of Tel Aviv. Uh, what do you think about Israel Israel's challenges? You can drop me a line on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like the content, want to get more, simply go to my website, borealisthreatrisk.com. Find a subscribe button, provide your email address. You'll get a free daily digest of all the podcasts, all the blogs, first thing in the morning to your inbox, free of charge. Love to hear what you thought of this podcast and others. I'll talk to you again soon. Until then, stay safe. <laughs>